I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Mitchell Plitnick of Rethinking Foreign Policy returns to discuss the recent news of the FBI's investigation into the death of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akla, who was fatally wounded in May 2020 while covering an Israeli raid of a Janine refugee camp in the West Bank. In this conversation, Mitchell and I will discuss the FBI investigation into Shireen Abu Akla's death, Israel's refusal to cooperate with said investigation, and the Biden White House's response to the news of the FBI probe. Additionally, Mitchell and I will discuss the recent Israeli elections the rise of the Israeli far right, and President Joe Biden's approach to foreign policy when it comes to Israel. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. And now on to the conversation with Mitchell Plitnick of Rethinking Foreign Policy. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I very much enjoy having on, a progressive voice that's very thoughtful on issues related to foreign policy, especially in the Middle East. Mitchell Plitnick of Rethinking Foreign Policy. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Very good. Very good. And we have a lot to talk about. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, there's a an FBI probe into the death of journalist Shireen Abu Akla. And I just noticed that uh, apparently Netanyahu gave an interview with Fox News about an hour or so ago commenting on it. Uh, but uh, maybe you could tell my listeners, if they are unfamiliar with the Abu Akla case, what, what are the basics of it? 
Sure. Um, so Shireen Abu Akhla, uh was a uh, Palestinian American journalist. Uh, she was shot and killed in uh, covering uh, uh, an Israeli raided Janine uh, refugee camp in the West Bank. Um, the the initial report, or at least the initial response from Israel, was that uh, she was probably shot by Palestinians uh, during an exchange of fire with IDF troops. That that idea quickly fell apart as there was no exchange of fire going on and there were witnesses and there was video. Um, so then it it changed to there was an exchange of fire elsewhere and uh, perhaps an Israeli soldier accidentally uh, shot her. Uh, that also did not hold water when a number of uh, media outlets uh, showed that that could not have been the case. Shireen was wearing full body armor. She was wearing a helmet, a bulletproof helmet. Uh, and um, the bullet that killed her went into a very, very small area between her body armor and her helmet. Um, and it, it is exceedingly unlikely that it could have been accidental, uh, just a random shot. Um, so uh, in, in the end, a number of uh, independent outlets uh, did their own investigations and found that it was almost it was it was pretty much certain that a nearby uh, Israeli uh, uh, vehicle, armored vehicle, uh, was the source of the bullet that killed her, that it was shot at her intentionally. Um, now. Is it possible that there was a case of mistaken identity or any of that? Well, yes, that is, I suppose, possible, although it is very unlikely uh, as she was wearing, uh, you know, the, her, her helmet and her body armor both had press in very, very big letters to make sure that she doesn't get shot. Um, and Israel ended up doing a sort of they said they would not launch a criminal investigation and they have not, but they did an internal army investigation and they said finally they were forced to admit that their soldier was the one that that shot her, but that it was uh, done by mistake and that the soldier had no intention uh, of harming a civilian. And initially, the United States, uh, the White House, the State Department were ready to leave it at that. Um, there has, however, been a great deal of activism around her death. Um, she worked for Al Jazeera, so Al Jazeera has not let it die. And Al Jazeera is a worldwide news network. Um, I, I was going to was... say real quickly, mm -hmm. just for people that are unaware, I mean, the fact that she worked for Al Jazeera, uh, she was very prominent Palestinian-American journalist. This really did reverberate uh, through a lot of the Palestinian and just broader Arab community. Absolutely. Um, all over the world, as a matter of fact, um, she was very, very not only respected, but very well loved. Um, she was a she was not just a reporter. Um, she would be somebody who was immediately recognizable to Palestinians uh, in a way that I don't know, um, somebody like maybe Anderson Cooper is to Americans. Uh, that's that's how familiar she would have been. But unlike Anderson Cooper, who's kind of a talking head, um, she actually was an on the ground journalist, um, you know, and clearly risking her life uh, for her profession, uh, which made her even more of a heroic figure. So she was really quite beloved. Uh, she has she as I said, she was an American citizen. She has family here that pushed very hard for a legitimate investigation into her death and not just an investigation, but accountability uh, for her death. And 
as it turned out, they found allies in Congress, which is a bit of a surprise. It's unusual. Um, Andre Carson led the uh, led the charge in the House, and Chris Van Hollen, who I'm, uh, you know, I, I don't get a lot. Of, he's my senator. I don't get a lot of opportunity to 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 really praise my representative, but Chris Van Hollen really took this one up, and he took it very very seriously, and it was serious enough that even very very pro Israel sort of. Uh, 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 members of Congress, like Bob Menendez, who is one of the most hawkish senators. Uh, he's from New Jersey, a Democrat, but extremely, extremely pro-Israel. Even he was dissatisfied with the answers that were coming out of Israel. Um, so, uh, you know, in, in the end, the Department of Justice, uh, the, the FBI actually did open uh, open an investigation into her death. And that's where we are now. I'm not aware, by the way, of uh, the Netanyahu interview, so I, I won't be able to speak to that. But uh, yeah, well, uh, it, it was interesting. Anyway. Maybe you could. I, I mean, I know you can't comment on what he said, but uh, it does tie into an article you wrote um, uh -huh. about Israel's reaction uh, to uh, the FBI probe. And I mean, the, the the reaction from Netanyahu, if I were to sum it up, was basically that you know uh, the, the Israeli military can do their own investigations and. You know, uh, the, the Israeli military, if it's not the most moral military in the world, he said it's um, there is none more moral is what he said. But uh, he was basically saying, you know, the U.S. doesn't really they wouldn't like it if, if we did this to them. I think it's uh, similar to uh, it echoes, I guess, other criticisms uh, that the Israeli right has had of the FBI probe. So, so what are the criticisms, though? So let's first of all, let me first of all point out, it's not just the Israeli right. It's very much the Israeli center that has uh, also uh, uh, raised very loud and I think quite obnoxious uh, objections to this investigation. So um, Netanyahu, as, as a, I, I think people might know, uh, just won uh, the election. He is almost certainly, he's currently forming the next government. He is almost certain to succeed. So he's the incoming, for all intents and purposes, prime minister. Uh, the outgoing prime minister, Yair Lapid, is considered to be a centrist. I, I would call him center right, but but uh, he's considered to be a centrist in Israel. Uh, and he absolutely blasted this investigation and 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 brazenly declared we will not, you know, no Israeli soldier will be uh, questioned by anyone outside of Israel. We will protect our soldiers as if the United States. Uh, which is providing Israel with billions of dollars a year, which is providing Israel with diplomatic and political cover, which is providing Israel with so many sweetheart business deals. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, so, you know, for example, a, a lot of joint projects that go on between uh, the U.S. and Israel that are facilitated by the government, they're private sector projects, but they're facilitated by the U.S. government. Um, it's all set up and then, you know, the private sector takes it over, as with so many things that the United States does uh, with our own corporations. Um, so, I mean, the United States gives an awful lot to Israel. And for Israel to basically thumb its nose at the United States when it says, hey, we'd like to know what happened when you killed one of our citizens. Um, I mean, it is really outrageous and it's sort of stunning uh, although not surprising, and unfortunately, it's business as usual, that more people are not uh, outraged by Israel's reaction. Um, but this this has been the reaction of really Israel across the spectrum. Nobody is really supporting the idea that uh, nobody in Israel is really supporting the idea that the United States has every right to investigate what happened to one of their citizens, especially since Israel has been caught repeatedly lying about it. Um 
So, I mean, there's every reason that the, the Abelakla family would like to get to the bottom of this and see someone held accountable for Shireen's death. Uh, and really no good reason that Israel should deny that if indeed uh, uh, this was a soldier who either made a mis- an, an, an honest mistake or was acting as a rogue or uh you know it or was in any way not acting under under orders in in when when he or she uh uh killed Shireen. and yet um it 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 goes on and the truth of the matter is is that while it's nice that the FBI opened this investigation the investigation is almost certain to die it, without Israeli cooperation um and with no pressure from the White House or State Department for Israel to cooperate and make its soldiers available to US investigators there really isn't much the FBI can find out that hasn't already been discovered by the different uh human rights groups and media sources which by the way include the New York Times CNN Washington Post you know this is not radical left-wing media sources that are uh that that have found that Israel uh that that this was a a target killing whether intentionally or not uh, uh, in terms of uh targeting a civilian they can't find out about that without talking to the soldier obviously I was just going to say real briefly here uh, just to put a fine point on it too I mean Shireen Abu Akhla was a Palestinian American so it, it would make sense for the FBI to be interested in this uh, absolutely case. Uh, Absolutely. Not only not only makes sense. I mean, it, it's pretty much required when an American is killed by a foreign military, including an ally. Uh, the Department of Justice is supposed to investigate this. That's that's their job. They are that is what they're supposed to do. Um, and uh, you would again think that you know uh, an ally and partner like Israel would would uh, cooperate with that, unless of course they told the soldier. Uh, to 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 do this, which of course many people believe there's no evidence to support that idea, um, and the only thing that even suggests it is Israel's hysterical reaction to an investigation. What is f- from the Israeli side? What is the main objection uh, to the FBI doing this investigation, and what would you say are the biggest um, counterpoints to their objections? So I think you know for Israel, you know, put, trying to to, to to go into that point of view, um, it is really about the precedent. Um, Israel, you know, maintains that, as 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 you you cited Netanyahu before, that it has the most moral army in the world. Um, Israel says it is quite capable of investigating its own soldiers, which is true. It is quite capable of doing that. So are we. Uh, we're quite capable of investigating our soldiers. We don't do it in, in most cases. In some cases, we do. Uh, and they don't do it, and except in some cases. They have, at times, launched investigations, usually for much more minor offenses than, than this, looting and things of that nature. Um, I, and I think so. I think it's the, it's the question of a precedent uh, that that they worry about. They uh, the, their basic modus operandi is nobody outside of Israel gets to question our soldiers. And I think they, they're going to stand fast on that. Uh, and so I think that just everything else aside now, again, is it possible that they're covering something up? It is possible. We can't know because they won't let us investigate. Uh, and again, their refusal to cooperate with, you know, you would think they, they could make an exception for the United States, right? If they wanted to, they could. Uh, and their refusal to do that does suggest they have something to hide. But there's no way of knowing that. And again, um, the way Israel operates is nobody outside can talk to our soldiers. Israel, and this goes across the political spectrum, Israel is very protective of its military. 
uh, and they want to allow their military to act with impunity to the extent that they permit. In other words, the, that the only constraints on their soldiers are the ones they decide to put on, not anyone outside, not international law, not the United States, uh, certainly not any other, you know, Europe or any other country uh, or continent. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think I think it is that basic. And it, this is something that's very, very ingrained in Israel. It's very fundamental to their whole approach to how they see the military. And it's very popular. Uh, many, you know, many Israelis will do agree with this, uh, including liberal Israelis who simply don't trust anyone on the outside. How would you compare this um, to uh, say the the case of, um, I believe two decades ago now, uh, the, the case of Rachel Corey, who was, for people that don't know, uh, ran over by a US made armored bulldozer. Um, how would you compare that case to this one? So, um, so Rachel, was first of all it was a different time and i think the context of the time is is important this was 2003 uh just and, weeks before the iraq war i think too uh yeah. yeah i believe that's right um and rachel was an activist with the international solidarity movement which was a very very demonized organization at that time and you know there were there were certainly some people who uh were very radical uh in that organization um but uh but but you know they were treated as if they themselves were quote unquote terrorists uh and in fact were accused of 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 being connected to terrorism um so they and they so Israel had really done a lot of character assassination on that group in general Rachel was was an activist with them and she was in Gaza this is before Israel uh, withdrew from Gaza. And uh, there was a house that was supposed to be demolished. And uh, she, as an American, thought that if she sat down in front of the house between the bulldozer and the house, that the bulldozer would not dare run her over. Well, the bulldozer, the bulldozer driver showed that she was incorrect, unfortunately, and she was killed. And there was uh, an uproar uh, over this and it was very, very difficult for Israel to explain it away. Um, but in the end, what they said was that they launched an investigation and that they found that the driver didn't see her, which I don't know anyone who actually buys that. But it was enough for the U.S. government. And they did not uh, open an investigation, although there were moves in Congress uh, to try and get them to do so. Those moves were largely confined to the most radically, I mean, to, you know, to the extent you can use the word radical with Congress, but but you know, to the most left-wing elements uh, in the House of Representatives. And it didn't really go anywhere. It didn't generate any real pressure on the executive branch. And of course, that was, you know, uh, not long after 9-11. Uh, you know, there was a lot less sympathy uh, in 2003 for the Palestinians than there is now. There was a much greater sense of solidarity with Israel. The Second Intifada was at that time raging. So um, it was just a completely different political environment. And unfortunately, Rachel's family has never really given up trying to to have their, uh, you know, especially her parents, Cindy and Craig Corey, um, have never given up trying to have their daughters uh, uh, 
killing addressed, but you know, 20 years on, uh, you know, it seems to have gone as, as far as it will go. So the, the political circumstances is really, I think, what changed. I don't, you know, I certainly do not want to minimize the amount of uh, activism that went on 20 years ago to try and get Rachel's, I mean, Rachel's face and her name were all over the place. Uh, people were really, really working hard. I think just as hard as they have now, but the political environment now is a little bit more conducive uh, to to somebody in Congress like Chris Van Hollen uh, picking up the cause. And I, I do think that's what has made the difference between then and now. And, and of course, it doesn't hurt uh, that Shireen is a is a, you know, is a big global figure and has a, a global news network like Al Jazeera keeping her name in the headlines. It, it That helps, too. Um, on the other hand, we could also point to the fact that Rachel was a white woman. So you would have thought that would have given her an advantage in, in terms of having it um uh, investigated. So, you know, but so I think really the decisive thing is just a different political environment. And I think it is an indication that Israel's image is not what it was, that people do understand that Israel is not this bastion of morality in its occupation that Netanyahu and others like to claim it is. And I think people understand the Palestinians are being dispossessed and are facing really, really horrible conditions, even if they're sympathetic to Israel. I think they recognize that Israel is doing terrible things to the Palestinians. So I think it's a different, as I say, political environment now. Could you talk a little bit to the Biden administration, uh, White House reaction uh, to the announcement of the FBI probe? Because I, I think they're not going to really, it doesn't seem like they're uh, enthusiastic about this probe. Yeah, that's an understatement. I think this, um, I mean, the, the first thing they that they said about it was they had nothing to do with it. Um, that they didn't even know about it, which is not true. I mean, there's there's no way they didn't know about it. The the, the Department of Justice uh, did not do something like this that that involves such a key ally. Um, and and in fact, according to reports, they had decided to do this before the Israeli elections, but decided to hold on. You know, they didn't inform the Israelis, and, and it was informing the Israelis that made this public. Uh, they held on to it for about three or four days uh, before letting Israel know that that they had decided they had decided to open this investigation. It is inconceivable that uh, DOJ made this decision and just sat on it and didn't give the White House a heads up that they that they had done, you know, just just to inform them. Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm sure that uh, the Biden administration knew. I'm sure the State Department knew. Um, I also think that it would have been very difficult for them politically to um, to interfere with with justice on this. I think they might have had that conversation and said, can we do this? And I think they came up with the answer is no, because. Um, I think they're afraid that if they did, it would be used by supporters of Donald Trump to show how politicized uh, the Department of Justice is so that when they go after Trump for for any of the many things that they're going to go after him for, um, they, they could have used that argument to show how you know Biden's really behind it and it's all a democratic conspiracy. It's not about the law. So I think there's, I think there's that. And I also think there would have been quite a bit of backlash if they had tried to just stop the FBI from from doing its job um, in this regard. And I think in the bottom line is they 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 said it's not really worth it because in the end, if Israel won't cooperate and we won't push them, nothing's going to happen. Um, and I think that's but I think that's really where it comes uh, to 
to, to, to a matter that Americans should all be very, very concerned about. You know, this is not the Israel, whatever you thought of, of Israel for the past 70 years, this is not that Israel anymore. This is a, this has become a a country that the masks are off. You know, their their apartheid ideology uh, and their racism is very strongly reflected in a very open and blatant and racist way uh, in this incoming government. And the way that the Biden administration is approaching this government is one of conciliation and of weakness and of complete abandonment of principle which is the standard way American administrations have usually approached Israel. But again, this is not that same Israel. This is not an Israel that's going to moderate its behavior uh, in order to make things a little easier in Washington. Uh, so uh, they are sending a very, very dangerous signal, I think, right now uh, by, by operating as if it is business as usual. This is not business as usual, neither in the sense of what Israel is with this new far-right government coming in, or in the sense of what this crime is. This this was the deliberate, deliberate targeting of an American citizen, world-famous journalist. You know, this is something that Israel needs to answer for or explain why they shouldn't. And they have done neither, and they have not been, and, and I think that's understandable uh, when no one's making them do either of them. They, you know, if there, there's no good reason for them to do it. Why should they when they're going to still enjoy all the benefits of uh, their close relationship with the United States uh, and you know other countries uh, if they don't do it? I was just gonna say, we're gonna move on to other topics in a moment here, but. You know, ultimately, you have Israeli leaders saying, you know, this investigation is going to be largely symbolic, this investigation the FBI is doing. And I think it's important to note, you know, if they're not going to cooperate, then, yeah, it will be largely symbolic and it won't go any further. I guess for for me, what can what could be done um, to make Israel cooperate in, in a in a better world or a, a, in an environment where Biden uh, would react with more strength on this rather than weakness? What could be done? I think quite a bit. Um, I, I don't even think you you even need to bring out the heavy guns of of threatening things like military aid, which you know is 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 a, is a different issue. And 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 there are other reasons why we should be taking a very close look uh, and, and and a very skeptical look at the amount of military aid we're giving to Israel. But I don't even think you have to go that far. Um, I think if the Biden administration would simply be you know, talking about this and talking about the fact that an American citizen was killed by Israel and we want answers. Um, I think you make that case publicly here. That hurts Israel with the American public that is still supportive of Israel. That erodes that support even further. Um, already, you know, we saw this November, the the pro-Israel lobbying group, APAC, uh, has now gotten into uh, actually spending money uh, for, for candidates. This was the first uh, election cycle that they could ever do that. And they did spend a lot of money. And yet in all of their ads and all of their campaign propaganda, they never spoke about Israel. All, they spoke about other issues. They tried using other issues to discredit whoever they didn't like. And they did not bring up Israel. Why? I mean, if, if Israel is is such a, a popular issue, if so many Americans are going to back Israel, 
uh, why didn't they just say so? This person is is against Israeli interests, and therefore you should not vote for them. Uh, the reason is because most Americans don't feel that way. Uh, most Americans are seeing uh, what Israel is, at least more than they used to. They are more critical of Israel. And if the president of the United States stands up and says, hey, why are you obstructing an investigation into the death of an American citizen at the hands of one of your soldiers? Uh, that that would be that would be a considerable black eye. And if that was pressed over time, it would lead to other issues. It would lead to you know certain the question of a certain bill coming up in Congress. All of a sudden, there isn't the support for it that there usually is. Um, there could be all sorts of possibilities that grow out of that. It simply changes the zeitgeist, if you will, around Israel, uh, which is already changing, but it's changing independent of Washington. If suddenly the president said, listen, you're going to uh, allow us to investigate, we're going to start bringing this into the public arena, um, Israel has a lot to lose there. If indeed that doesn't move Israel, there are other things. Uh, you know, the, there's always the withholding of loan guarantees. Then there is, of course, the potential for increased scrutiny of uh, military aid or withholding of that military aid. Um, there, you know, you can you can do this by degrees. You can take steps um, to do take different, you know, use different uh, um, modes of pressure. Uh, on Israel until it finally relents. Eventually, it has to. The, for all that Israel tries to uh, make nice with other countries and, and diversify the support it gets, you know, by by not you know not helping Ukraine so that they can stay in Russia's good graces, by working more with China, you know, these are things that the United States does not like them doing. In fact, they just told them to pull back from China, and Israel did. Um, the ultimately, the reason Israel listened to that is because there is no alternative for Israel to the United States. No other country will do anywhere near for them what the United States has done. So, you know, all you have to do is threaten that aid, you know, say that it, it's not going to happen. Again, we can look back at history. Um, you know, George W. And, Bush. Real quick, we're not just yeah. talking about when we talk about the military aid and arms still issue. I mean, this this would apply to things just even beyond Abu Akhla's death. Um, it, yeah. Um, I mean, I think that is a question of, of a certain approach. But again, you know, these options are always there and never taken. Uh, and this is something that that, you know, you know, obviously I'm talking about escalating past a certain point. But I think just talking about this issue uh, and criticizing Israel openly on this issue in a in a more public way. Uh, would by I think by itself generate sufficient pressure that yeah that Israel would be ready to find some some way to uh, you know they would start looking for ways to at least offer a modicum a semblance of accountability and if that wasn't enough they'd offer a little bit more of a semblance they would find that 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 sweet spot that would satisfy uh, you know the, those pushing for. Uh, uh, real accountability, and and hopefully that would be actual accountability of whoever was responsible uh, uh, for Shireen's death. You know, I I think these things are possible. Now, this is way beyond anything you would expect from the Biden administration. But even the Biden administration can um, be at least talking to Israel and trying to press Israel um, to just cooperate with the FBI. Give us something throw us a bone here. And they're not even, the fact that they're not even doing that, I think is a, a is a grave, grave concern um, for, for the future of um, the region and of uh, American policy in the region. 
So since you mentioned uh, the, the Israel lobby, APAC, um, do you think it's significant, uh, the changes that have happened with APAC recently? I mean, it feels like they're a much more um, partisan-oriented lobby. Now, it seems like they're very cozy with Republicans and less and less so with Democrats in some ways. And as you said, now they're into uh, more direct forms of, of lobbying. So uh, are those changes important to note? I think they're important. Um, and I think I think their biggest importance will be uh, what supporters of Palestinian rights make of it. Uh, and what I mean by that is um, APAC has, with their decision to get involved directly with political campaigns, which they never were before, APAC, uh, despite the name, APAC was not a PAC. It was not a political action committee. It could not directly contribute to, to campaigns. It could not, for example, run ads uh, supporting a candidate for political office, uh, things of that nature. Now, what they said about it, they they could comment, they could analyze, and that analysis would inspire many other PACs to be, you know, that was how uh, to, to give money. And that was how it worked for many years. But they decided to get involved directly. I think that was a tactical mistake on their part. And I think in the long run, they're going to see that. Uh, but uh, I think they um, they have now opened themselves up to become sort of the face of money in politics in the United States, which is not, as, as I'm sure everyone knows, not a very popular thing to be. Uh, people don't like the influence of money in politics, and they're seeing APAC. Um, now, you know, Bernie Sanders never fails to mention that when he's talking about big lobbies, now he he has a name for it, APAC. You know, it's not the pharmaceutical lobby. It's not even the Israel lobby. It's APAC. It's an actual organization that we can look at and, and use as the symbol. So I think that is very important. Um, I think it is also important to, um, to, to note that APAC um, has kind of abandoned a lot of its own old political savvy. Uh, they used to be a lot smarter than this. You know, I think endorsing 100 Republicans who were election deniers was a big mistake. Um, you know, that does not look good to a lot of uh, Americans, not only Democrats, a lot of Republicans, you know, the, 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 if you want to call them the never Trump Republicans or the, you know, the many Republicans who are kind of, you know, who may have liked Trump, but were not so crazy about the coup. I mean, there's a lot of people out there like that. Um, and I think that alienated all of them when they said, we don't care about any of that. All we care about is Israel. I think that, you know, that makes people sort of say, okay, well, you know we're Americans. You know we're 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 not interested in seeing uh, all this uh, campaign money being poured in on behalf of a foreign country. Um, and I think that does raise those questions. I think it's going to raise those questions even more as they become more partisan and more of the Democratic Party realizes that this is a way to go after them. You know, APAC should be, frankly, should be registered as a foreign agent. They are an agent of uh, the Israeli government. There's nothing wrong with being that. Um, you know that there, may, you know, many countries have lobbyists here in the United States, and that's fine. Um, they don't necessarily even all take their marching orders directly from foreign governments, but they work on behalf of those governments. They know what those interests are, and they they lobby on behalf of those. That's what APAC does for Israel, and they should be required to publicly state that. That's all that registration really means. Um, and they have always resisted that because, of course, that diminishes their public appeal. And I think now this, this what they've done now is increase the scrutiny on themselves so that hopefully – you know, over some time, uh, we can force them to, you know, just be who they are. They are agents of the Israeli government. 
So one thing I want to get into, and I've talked about it with other people on the show, but I want to get your understanding of it. Uh, the Israeli elections, Netanyahu is is now going to be prime minister again. The Likud par- party is in power. Uh, but this coalition government has a few worrying elements, um, particularly the rise of these figures like Itamar Ben-Giver and uh, Bezalil Smotrich. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what their rise means and the parties they're affiliated with? So... Um... Uh, ben Gvir and Smotrich are both uh, well. They're they're leaders of uh, uh, two parties that that ran together with a third party called Noam. So these three parties came together for the election, um, and then once the election was over, they split up again. So they each can pursue their own agendas, um, but they're all part of. They're all going to be part of the incoming uh, government. Um, Ben Gvir is the most notorious. He has actually been arrested as a supporter of terrorism. He is an uh, outright uh, and 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 you know unashamed supporter of Rabbi Meir Kahana, who was so racist back in the a uh, man so racist back in the eighties and nineties that he was kicked out of the Knesset for anti-Arab racism. I think um, he also has very no, he has very uh, reactionary views towards. LGBTQ people as well. And um, yeah, he, he, Ben Gvir does, although Smotrich much more. Smotrich called himself a proud homophobe once. Um, and actually the Noam party, the third party that no one ever talks about uh, in that in that little group uh, uh, that, that Smotrich headed in for the election, the Noam party, which only got one seat in the Knesset, but uh, they are now going to get a new ministry, uh, a ministry of Jewish identity, which is really horrifying. Uh, to me as a Jew, um, that party is that their entire platform is homophobia. That's what they are. They they are explicitly they they think that LGBTQIA people are are evil and bad and uh, and 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 completely against Jewish values and that Israel cannot tolerate them. Their first uh, action item that they're that they said that they would pursue if they got into the Knesset was uh, to repeal a law that bans conversion therapy, which for, for those who don't know that that's the therapy that that. Uh, uh, LGBT people are often forced into to try to make them straight. Um, it it's it is incredibly damaging. It causes death and and severe emotional harm. It is a horrible horrible thing. Um, and that's who the Noam Party is, and that's who Smotrich uh, also supports. Ben Gvir is much more. Uh, 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 you know, he he's really focused on his racism. Uh, he's a man who just uh, you know wants. Uh, he he believes that uh, you know Israel's uh, Palestinian citizens should all be basically back under martial law the way they were in the country's first two decades, um, if not outright expelled. Um, he believes in things like loyalty oaths. He uh, is, it, it simply does not think Palestinians have any rights whatsoever, and he is going to pursue that. He is especially pursuing that in Jerusalem, uh, where he is a known um, provocateur. And we can go on and on with how bad. I mean, this is essentially a fascist uh, party, uh, uh, both the, the, that whole coalition is 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 essentially basically three fascist parties that came together uh, to run as one in the election. But it's important also, I think, to to note that just because that as bad as they are, the biggest party in the Knesset, which is Netanyahu's Likud, and that has been the biggest party in the Knesset since two thousand nine, um, uh, that that party is almost as bad. 
their their racism is really out front as well. They similarly do not uh, see Palestinians as as deserving of of equal rights. Um, they similarly believe in privileging Jews in every every way they can. Um, and they're all you know these parties are now also making common cause with the with religious conservatives in Israel uh, that want to create a, a a state according to Jewish law. Um, which for those who think that that's what Israel is, it is not. Um, and and such a state would be much worse than what we have now. Um, so, you know, altogether, this is a really, really, really far right government. I mean, Israel has been lurching rightward with successive elections for quite some time. Look, even in the opposition, uh, many of those parties are right wing as well. So, you know, there, there's there's a strong right wing majority in the Knesset, even if it's not going to be because the, the actual dividing line in the Knesset is, are those right wingers who support Netanyahu and those right wingers who don't support Netanyahu. That's who, that's who is in or out of the government. So we're talking about a really, really far right uh, government. It's been heading that way for a long time. But this was a pretty big jump rightward. I was going to say, I think that's a very important point that you brought up. Uh, that Netanyahu himself and, you know, his party, the Likud party, you know, they're also pushing a lot of mm -hmm. far-right policies, Absolutely. not just Smotrich and Ben Giver, because I know people will say, well, uh, you know, Ben Giver and Smotrich's parties, uh, it's only this portion of the, the Israeli population that voted for them. And it's not, it's not as bad as people are making it out to be. That's why it's sort of important to point out that Netanyahu himself and the Likud party itself pushes for a lot of these far-right policies as well. It is important, although, you know, uh, the the religious Zionism coalition uh, that ran, so Smutrich, Ben-Gvir, and, and uh, um, uh, the, the Noam party, uh, the, these three parties together are the second biggest in, in what is going to be the governing coalition. They will have, I believe, 13 or 14 seats um, in, in the next Knesset. So that will make them the second biggest party in the government um, uh, and the third biggest in the, in the whole Knesset. So... Um, it, that's a significant, you know, that's that's about 15, 15 to somewhere between 15 and 20 percent of, of the Israeli population voted for them. Um, and then, you know, again, Likud is also right wing and a lot of people may be just as right wing, uh, didn't vote for uh, the, the religious Zionism coalition, but voted for one of the ultra orthodox parties um, just because they wanted a more explicit uh, Jewish law sort of uh, presence in, in, in the government. So the, the, the fact of the matter is that the Israeli electorate has moved very far to the right. And, you know, the reason is that, you know, um, it, it, there are a number of reasons, but, but uh, you know, many liberal Israelis have left Israel because of the way it's gone over the past two two decades or so. Um, and you know, more and more young people in Israel are actually on the right. We're used to uh, in in the U.S. and Europe, young people tend to be liberal idealists, um, and in Israel, young people are more and more um, right wing xenophobes. So one thing that's been interesting to me, I think there was initially a response from Washington uh, of, of sort of concern about, okay, well, are you going to give, you know, Smotrich this position in the, in the government uh, or, or Ben Giver this position? We are worried about that. Why do you think maybe that that response is weakened? Well, I think what they were most concerned about was nonsense. Um, to be frank, when when the when the election first happened, there, uh, Smotrich said that he wanted the Ministry of Defense. That was his initial demand. Uh, he knew he wasn't getting it, and um, 
everybody knew he everybody in Israel knew he wasn't getting it. There was no chance that he was going to get defense for a number of reasons. First of all, Netanyahu wants defense for Likud. So that that's one big reason. But but an even bigger reason is even many on the right didn't want him to get it because he has very limited uh, military experience. He's not a military guy. He's he's a civilian. Um, he had a very brief time in the army um, he, and, and it was undistinguished. He uh, so there was, you know, he's just not qualified for the post by, uh, you know, by any objective me- measure. And Ministry of Defense is something that Israelis take very, very seriously. He was never going to get that. I think he knew that. Um, but the United States reacted as if this was a really strong possibility and ran to the you know, do not make him the minister of defense. We cannot have him, you know, being this guy's coordinating security with us. And in the end, Smotrich is going to get the ministry of finance, which is a place where he can do plenty of damage. Um, and where, you know, again, American officials will deal with him quite a bit. Um, you know, this is all the business, this is the whole business side. And there's quite a lot of that between the United States and Israel. So they're still going to be dealing with them, but not on security issues. Ben Gvir got exactly the post he wanted, Minister of Public Security. Um, uh, this is a man who is literally uh, the Israeli version of David Duke uh, and will be in charge of um of the police and border and border patrol, which means those those are well, those are forces that contact come in contact with Palestinians a lot in uh, within the country, in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Um, those, you know, a lot of times when you're seeing what they call on the new soldiers, a lot of times those are police or uh, border patrol because they, they also wear heavy military t- uh, style equipment. So. Um, that's those people are now under Ben Gvir's control. I mean, it is terrifying what that means. Um, you're literally you're putting uh, uh, the Israeli David Duke in charge of the police. I mean, just imagine what that would be like if David Duke was in charge of the police in the United States. And I don't think we have to, uh, you know, stretch our minds too far to realize what a horror show that's going to be. Um, I think the United States is still concerned about this. I think they're they're. They're worried about how they're going to deal with it. They're trying to push Netanyahu to bring back uh, some figures from his past who are more politically minded, less, uh, you know, less, uh, less radical, I guess you would say, or less blatant, you know, less, less shameless about about how radically right wing they are. You know, you know, Smotrich and Ben Gvir are the kind of people that just throw appearances to the wind. They're saying, look, we hate Arabs and we're going to do everything we can around about that. And, you know, I, Netanyahu is sophisticated enough to know that that's not going to help him in the, in the United States. Um, but there's not much, you know, he has he has little choice and he doesn't really care at this point that much because he also knows that that's going to appeal to the modern Republican Party, which is really where he sees uh, and has for some time seen Israel's real support coming from, despite his statement sometimes that uh, that that you know he's concerned about about all you know uh, all the the Jewish community and all this and that, but he's not. Um, I think, and I think when it comes to uh, appointments on on you know uh, uh, in, in these positions, I don't think the United States has a lot to say. Um, that I don't think Netanyahu will listen. Um, and I don't think they're really going to try. They're going to stick to this idea that it's not their business to interfere in Israel's internal dealings, uh, which is nonsense, because if they really wanted to, they would. Um, but, um, you know, and they're going to just deal with the fallout. I don't think the Biden administration, I certainly don't think Biden himself or Antony Blinken realizes how bad this fallout is going to be, though. Real quick, um, since you said that uh, 
both Smotrich and uh, Ben Gieber could do uh, damage in their positions. Like what what would the examples of the, the type of things, uh, you know, Smotrich could do in the finance ministry and um, Ben Gieber could do? What, what's the type of things they could do? Well, the the biggest problem with Smotrich in the finance ministry will be, le- first of all, his incompetence. Again, he's not really qualified for the position, uh, but uh it will be in, in terms of that. It'll be, I think, more symbolic. As as Israel goes more to the right, it's going to be more difficult, for example, for the United Arab Emirates to maintain its positive relationships with the Israeli government, uh, as they're seen more and more brutalizing uh, Palestinians. Um, Smutrich will also have uh, control over the budget, which means he can pretty, you know, he can he can. Um, really starve the uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel's their 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 sector, which they won some gains in the last government, uh, when when for the first time a, a Palestinian party was part of the governing coalition. Um, it was not a lot, but they they made some progress, a little bit more funding. He can slash all of that, and he probably will in response to any conflicts with Palestinians in the West Bank. Uh, so he, because he is in charge of not just making sure that the budget uh, goes through, but also in implementing it. So there's a few things he can do there. Ben Gvir, though, is really in a position to do a lot of harm, again, because he controls the police. Not only does he control the police, he also controls the sort of international... Um, um, sort of the international collaboration around counterterrorism that Israel is a center of. People come to Israel to learn counterterrorism techniques. Well, he's going to be teaching much harsher and more direct methods of conflict. And I think we could potentially see those in the streets of uh, many countries that are working with Israel. Um, it, he also, his ministry will also control cybersecurity and, and how they, how Israel works with the rest of the world on that. And you can bet that he's not going to give a damn about uh, concerns about privacy when we talk about things like the Pegasus software, the, the software that Israel invented that has been found on so many phones to spy on people without their knowledge. Well, in, so, including journalists yeah, by like cartels absolutely. in Mexico. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that it will go on top of um, the the uh, the what is likely to be a, a a removal of restraint uh on the police and border patrol and any other you know armed force that Ben Gvir uh 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 controls when it comes to um policing Palestinians and and violence against Palestinians so and that's you know as we know that that's harder to do now without getting it on film people are there with with their phones and they're there with cameras um and so that will uh, that will become public. That will go viral. We've seen it happen a lot. We're going to see it happen a lot more and a lot worse because you know what little restraint Israeli soldiers have—I'm uh, sorry—Israeli police have had uh, is going to be removed. Ben Gvir has no reason to restrain them. Uh, just a few more things briefly here. I guess for people that that are seeing this rise of the far right in Israel and getting concerned about it, I guess how did this happen? I mean, what what led to the rise of figures like uh, Ben Giver and Smotrich? I mean, how how have they become so successful? Um, what role did Netanyahu maybe play in that? What what's what's the uh, bottom line on how this far right force coalesced? So I think there's a number of there, there are a number of factors. I mean, look, <laughs> books have been written on this, and 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 many more will be. I mean, so it's not an answer I can give you. You know, 
in, in, in a minute, but, um, but really, you know, I, I see a few things. I mean, again, as I said, a lot of his, uh, a lot of the more reasonable Israelis, the more liberal, um, the, the, the more, I would say sophisticated, uh, more thoughtful, uh, more left-wing, if you even want Israelis have left the country. Uh, even those who have not necessarily, uh, renounced their Israeli citizenship don't live there anymore. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that's part of it. As I said, I think successive generations have um, have moved farther and farther to the right. Um, I think that uh, you know the failure of the Oslo Accords is a big deal. Um, I you know we we can talk about you know the the idea that uh, you know and I would I would argue that the Oslo Accords were doomed to failure from the be- from the beginning. But whether they were or not, many Israelis believed that this was the dawning of new age and that there was going to be peace. And they were then told when that didn't happen that it was all the Palestinians' fault, and they believed it. Uh, so that you know I think is another piece of it. And and fundamentally, I think also, you know, this is in many ways, this is what Israel has always been. You cannot be an ethno-nationalist state, which is what Israel has been from day one, uh, and hold liberal, hold liberal values uh, and not be violent to those who are not part of the privileged ethnicity. I think eventually it becomes what we're seeing now. It 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 tends towards this sort of right-wing extremism because that's its nature when you are trying to privilege when you are a country that is built on the premise that one group of people is going to be privileged over another that's what happens it's what happened here it's what happened in europe it's what happened all over the world it's happening in israel so i think there is there is all of that um and i think that um, when we put that together with the fact that Netanyahu has led this country since, for the most part, since 2009, um, and he is a man who is literally at the center of the move, the global move to the right. You know, he is a man who is who is very close with Viktor Orban. He is a man who who is uh, simpatico in many ways with Vladimir Putin. We all know his close relationship that he had uh, until the very end with Donald Trump. Um, Steve Bannon is an admirer. Of his. I mean, this is this is all part of that. Boris Johnson, we we can you know he's part of that whole movement, and so it is now being reflected in Israel after thirteen years of mostly Netanyahu. I was going to say, in that regard, what are we to make of? I think elements of of the far right in America and Europe um, almost have like overlap with Israel at the at this point. The Israeli right. What what are we to make of that? Because even these anti-Semitic elements seem to collaborate with. Um, you know, the far right in Israel. In Absolutely. I mean, first of all, there's never been uh, an absence of anti-Semitism on the Israeli far right. Um, when you look at the settler movement, uh, um, there was a they, they have I mean, they just uh, throw one example out of a group called Intirtsu, which is an explicitly fascist uh, right wing Jewish uh, group in Israel. Um, they don't like the New Israel Fund, which is a, a, a left wing center left uh Although Zionist center left uh, sort of funding mechanism that that funds many liberal organizations in Israel, uh, they didn't like they don't like them. Uh, at the time, their their uh, president was a woman named Naomi Chazan, and they put out a poster of Naomi Chazan with a big horn sticking out of her head. Well, this is a well-known anti-Semitic trope. Um, the settler movement, I, I remember a few years back, put out uh, a cartoon with just the, I mean, literally the, the worst anti-Semitic, putting the left-wing Jews as, you know, whiny, big nose, smelly, the whole, you know, the whole 
I mean, every anti-Semitic trope you would want to ever think about uh, was being hurled at at progressive Jews. So um, this anti-Semitism among right-wing Jews is not new. Um, and it is it is a part of the right. Um, we are seeing, you know, Donald Trump uh, can can sit down and talk about, uh, you know, his, uh, his have a conversation with Nick Fuentes and, and Kanye West or Ye, um, and and his former ambassador, David Friedman, says, you're better than this. Well, no, he's not. This is who he is. And it's who David Friedman is, too. When David Friedman disagreed with a, again, Zionist, but liberal Jewish group, J Street, he called them capos, you know, you call Jews capos. That is a that is a horrible, horrible anti-Semitic uh, comment. Um, I, I can go down the list. So there's nothing at all new uh, about uh, right wing Israel being. You know, look, they, right wing Israelis have been in bed with the uh, Christian nationalist movement for decades, from all the way back, you know, into the 90s with Jerry Falwell and 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 you know and those guys, um, and they never cared. I remember I've actually confronted Jewish leaders who are who are supportive of those groups and say, how can you support these groups when they explicitly say their entire theology is to gather Jews into Israel so that Christ can come back and all the Jews either convert or die? How much more anti-Semitic can you get? And they said, we don't care as long as they support Israel. The support for Israel is what matters. It has it, it and and the which is which is what makes the horrible collapsing of anti-Semitism um and, and and confusing that with criticism of Israel, which is not inherently anti-Semitic, although it you know it can be, but it can only be when you're not really trying to criticize Israel, you're only trying to be anti-Semitic. That's when it, it goes into anti-Semitism. Um that th that's what makes that so abhorrent. To to and it should be abhorrent to every Jew in the world, and it's very very dangerous. So um, yeah, I mean uh, the the unfortunately the Israeli right has in many ways been the vanguard of the global right. They've been the herald. It, it's been you know Netanyahu has in many ways led the way, uh, along with again you know people like Viktor Orban and Steve Bannon. I just had two more questions since you brought up the issue of anti-Semitism, and I've been talking to a lot of. Um, activists and journalists who cover Israel and Palestine about this. I mean, I do think we're seeing a very scary, um, you know, possible resurgence, a, a huge um, uh, just return of anti-Semitism. I, I think it's always been there in some ways, but I, I think there's a, a concern about the rise of anti-Semitism. And I think a lot of that is very legitimate. How do we walk the line between criticizing um you know, Israel, U.S. policies towards Israel, and also being able to talk about the problem of anti-Semitism in America and Europe. So I think I think part of the part of the problem, and I, I've I've wrestled with this a lot. Um, look, there is actually no in, in, there's no inherent problem with doing these things doing both these things at once, right? Fighting anti-Semitism and, and opposing uh, is really bad Israeli policies, or even uh, even to the extent of being anti-Zionist. There is, there's no inherent contradiction there. The contradiction is created by, unfortunately, groups like the Anti-Defamation League and APAC and the Zionist Organization of America and, uh, you know, and, and other groups, uh, including also, you know, Christians United for Israel, you know, it's not only Jewish groups. Um, it, 
because they are confusing those two things intentionally. They are blurring the lines between those things because they can't really defend Israeli actions. The only thing they can do is 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 say if you're if you're criticizing Israel, you're anti-Semitic. So I think you know I I think the the issue is that uh, we need first of all we all need to be conscious of of how we're approaching the question. Look, APAC is a lobby. Whether whether you know whether the ADL likes it or not, APAC is a lobby. They can be criticized as a lobbying group without uh, you know, and and if that if that echoes some of the things in the protocols of the elders of Zion, well, that's because the protocols were written specifically um, it, it, to describe lobbying groups. That's what it describes when you when you when you read it. That's you know, the the people but working behind the scenes to influence the government. That's what. That's what a lobbying group is. Um, that doesn't mean that every lobbying group is some sort of strange conspiracy theory. And I think we need to get I think part of it is we need to get away from the idea of, of you know, conspiracies that APAC, uh, uh, for example, is uh, is part of and just say, look, they're operating like a lobbying group and just describe what they're doing. Just you know, stick to stick to that, and you don't have a problem. I think also that uh, we need to be, and I, I'm I'm very heartened by the fact that you know we've seen a strong response to to Ye and his you know threat to go DEFCON three on the on the Jews. You know, I think that's important. I think it is important to to um, to to jump on any outright instance of anti-Semitism as we would any other. No more and no less, as we would on racism, as we would on on misogyny, on homophobia. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that those things are all connected. I think if we do that and simply stick to a straight ethical line, then we'll be able to turn around when disingenuous accusations of anti-Semitism are thrown, as they so often are. Uh, we can turn around and say, that's nonsense. That's not what's going on here. We're not being anti-Semitic. We're criticizing a government of Israel that is doing some really horrible things. The last thing I wanted to touch upon, I know after the Israeli elections, I think it was Keir Starmer in the United Kingdom said, you know, some some of the um, you know, extreme right elements in Israel. This is worrisome. Uh, but, you know, our bond with Israel um, transcends political differences. But I, I feel as if this is becoming an issue now where I think there is a double standard at work when it comes to Western countries and policy towards Israel. And it's almost becoming something we can't ignore anymore. And I just wanted your thoughts on that, because, I mean, if we're going to be a country that gets upset about human rights abuses in one country, uh, we have to be, you know, critical of when Israel does it as well. And I just wanted your thoughts on that. So, um, you know, this statement, and it, it's been echoed by several uh, different people. I mean, I, I, I think we, we are, I heard something like this from the State Department. I heard something like this from somebody else besides Starmer. Um, is it that this is in itself anti-Semitic. This is an anti-Semitic statement. Um, Israel is a country, and if you you know if you are, I spent I spent uh, a good number of years, uh, a good part of my education studying the history of Zionism, and while I certainly am not a Zionist, um, you know I know what Theodore Herzl had to say, and Theodore Herzl's entire uh, ideal was to create a Jewish state that was, in his words, a state like any other. Um, so you know, it, I, I was going to say real say briefly. That, if, mm -hmm. if I could, I was going to say, I mean, if we look at the, you know, uh, 
labor Zionists of, of yesteryear, I, I think a lot of them would have viewed themselves as, as socialists. Uh, it's very different than Likud in some ways. It, it's it, in some ways. I think part of the problem is once, you know, once, I mean, we can go back a hundred years and it was already starting um, because there was this sort of, um, there was this sort of blending of socialism, of a socialist ideology with nationalism. Um, and, uh, Nationalism, as a great Israeli scholar once pointed out, his name is Zev Schnernhel, um, uh, as he pointed out in a very important book, um, he, he he noted that whenever socialism and nationalism came into conflict, nationalism always won. So that was that was kind of the way Zionism, political Zionism evolved. And we're going back, you know, to like the World War One years. So it, it's really kind of been like that from the beginning. However, um, even, you know, when, when we talk about Likud and, and their ideological, you know, their, their ideological founder was really a man named Zev Jabotinsky, who was who who had many fascist ideas, actually, and yet um, also envisioned a Jewish state which had a, a deputy prime minister or a vice president, however, whatever it would have been, who was uh, Palestinian. He envisioned a sharing, even though, yes, the Jewish state, Jews would have been superior. He was absolutely a fascist, but even he envisioned some sort of place, uh, a, a Jewish state that, that provided a place for Palestinian citizens. So, uh, you know, the, there has certainly been an evolution uh, when when it comes to this. But, you know, when when countries say Israel can do whatever it wants, this is actually very bad. This is very bad for Israel in the long run, too. And it's obviously disastrous for Palestinians. I don't think we even have to, you know, I, I, I don't think that can even be questioned. I mean, we're giving uh, any country, I don't care what country it is, given any country carte blanche uh, the, to, to act as it will towards a minority, that's not going to end well. Um, especially not when there's a hundred year old conflict and a hundred year old uh, nationalistic conflict between the the majority and the minority. So it, it is not a surprise that it, it's gone this way. But as I say, this this notion that somehow uh, Israel is, is a different country than all other countries, whether you think that because of the Bible or whether you you think that because of the Holocaust, whatever that is. That cannot possibly come come to a good end for anyone. Um, right now, it's much worse for Palestinians, but in the end, it will be bad for everyone living in that region, and that entire region will eventually go up in flames because this is just not sustainable. Um, and and if you remove Israel from sort of political concerns, which is what that statement from Starmer does. Um, and remove it from political pressures, which is what the United States does on a daily basis by shielding Israel from the consequences of its actions, then eventually the only option for the people that Israel is oppressing is going to be violence, which I think we all want to avoid. Real quick, I, I guess what I was trying to get at, and I, I just wanted to get your thought on this, I think it's even it's even a bad thing for us beyond just talking about Israel-Palestine in the sense of, you know, if we want to push for human rights, uh, you know, we're going to have less of a leg to stand on if we ignore uh, the human rights abuses of Israel. I mean, this this actually hurts the, the greater, broader struggle for yeah. human rights worldwide if we ignore uh, Israeli rights abuses. 
it does. And I think we see that on, uh, you know, when when the United States, um, you know, for example, right now, I think we're seeing it at the World Cup when the United States criticizes Qatar uh, and, uh, you know, they turn around, and they say, well, look what you're enabling in Palestine. I, I don't see a counter argument to that. So, um, you know, it, it does do that. That being said, I mean, you know, I don't necessarily think that the United States is the right vehicle for international human rights, we need, a, a, you know, we clearly need a, an international system that can hold all countries accountable. Um, and we know, of course, that the International Criminal Court and International Court of Justice can't do that because the United States will not cooperate with it, uh, even aside from Israel, um, though that's usually the way it's it's that's usually the context in which it's discussed. But it, it won't. Yeah, you know, we won't cooperate with them when they're turning their attention towards us either, uh, because we're supposedly above all that. So, so, you know, I mean, the United States is is as big is really the big problem, I think, in that regard. The fact that we we protect Israel um, is 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 something that exacerbates that problem. But fundamentally, I think, you know, the, the only way we're going to be able to get to an international regime of human rights is by being willing to create one. We all have to agree that we're going to be willing to create one that holds every country, whether rich or poor, um, you know, or powerful or not powerful, uh, accountable to human rights regulations and, and international, you know, international law um, in a way that right now we just don't have the mechanism to do. Well, Mitchell Plitnick, I want to thank you uh, for coming on Parallax Views. I, I always enjoy talking to you. How can my listeners keep up with your work? Uh, you're on Mondo Weiss a lot, I believe, now, too. Yeah, I, I do about a column a week at Mondo Weiss, uh, pursuing a few other things. You can always find what I'm doing. You can follow me at Twitter, at, at, for as long as that's still around, at MJ Plitnik, M-J-P-L-I-T-N-I-C-K. Uh, you can follow my work at rethinkingforeignpolicy.org. Um, and if you're also going over to, to Mastodon, you can just look me up by my name if you're one of the people that are migrating over there. So I'm, I'm kind of all over. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mitchell Plitnick of Rethinking Foreign Policy. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight.
bit no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic community or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.